Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We are finishing out the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Not finishing out Matthew. We still have quite a ways to go in Matthew. You know, it's interesting. We mentioned earlier that we're not doing our pie social after um, the Thanksgiving Eve service, which is a crying shame. But... uh, I, I love when we get together to eat as a church together, and you know the, the dessert table, like where you got to go first because otherwise you might not get it later, but there's just so many things on the dessert table, so many good, you people know how to cook, and especially dessert, I'm sure you're good at the other stuff too, but that's what I notice, the desserts are amazing. There's all these choices, right? You go there, there's pie, there's cakes, there's cookies, there's brownies, there's Things I don't know what they are, but they're delicious. So many things. I miss those things. But they're all good choices. And there might be some that if you take it, you think, well, I, I, I might have liked that other thing better. You try the other thing. Oh, I should have gotten that. You know, you take a little bit from your, your husband's or your wife's plate. And it's like, oh, that might have been better. And, but really, they're all pretty good choices. What if on the dessert table there were just two choices? Pecan pie. And brownies. Now, they're both good, right? You don't like pecan pie? You are excommunicated. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm kidding. Just kidding. It's okay. It's more for me. Um, so, so now you have two choices. So it's a little more constrained. There's just two, but... I mean, unless you hate one, obviously, but it's still, it's not going to kill you, right? Unless, again, maybe you're allergic, but it's not that you could choose whichever one you want, no big deal. Now, what if I told you that the brownies would kill you? Literally. Different choice now, isn't it? Now it's not just a, a choice between, do I prefer this? I prefer pecan pie. Karen prefers brownies. That's fine. It's a preference. No big deal. She can make her choice. I can make mine. Now it's a choice not between a preference, but between life and death. That's different, right? Completely different. Today we're finishing out the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is in this context of Jesus' early teaching and preaching, which Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. He preached the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then just a little while later, Matthew begins recording or telling us what the Sermon on the Mount is in all the details. These three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, all the Sermon on the Mount, all under this banner of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So he's hammering home this idea of Who needs to repent? And he took the self-righteous religious people that thought they had it all together and he said, unless your righteousness surpasses the greatest righteousness you can think of, you're not righteous enough. So the self-righteous needs to repent. And he's systematically gone through each and every one of us and pulled the rug out from under us on anything that we might be trusting in ourselves to the point where each one of us must come to the conclusion we all need to repent. The other theme that goes along with the Sermon on the Mount is what does it mean to live in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of Jesus? We might say it today as what does it mean to live as a Christian? What does it look like? 
And Jesus has said, it's not just a bunch of rituals. It's not just some, some practices that we mindlessly go through. It has to sink deep into our heart and soul. It has to come out through our feet and our hands in everything we do, everywhere we go, every way that we act and everything that we speak. We must be saturated with the understanding. We belong to Jesus Christ. We are following him. And in today's passage, Jesus brings all this home at the conclusion of this sermon with the command that we must choose. We must make a life-altering, life-saving, life-defining choice. And he starts with this idea of we must choose our path. Which road are we on? Now, let's look at the passage here, verses 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Okay, this is not just personal preference. There is a path that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. There is a wide road, easy to walk on, simple. Anybody, you can walk in any lane that you want. It'll fit any preference. It's totally wide, open to everybody. The gate is huge. Anybody can walk through it. Very easy, very comfortable, makes no demands on us whatsoever. And if you were a merchant at this time, you had a a wagon full of of belongings you were bringing into market and you heard there's a narrow road and a narrow gate or there's a wide road and a wide gate, which one are you going to choose? Well, the wide one. I don't want to have to unpack my cart and bring everything through by hand, find another cart in the city. This is hard. It's going to put demands on me. I want the easy way. But what if somebody came to you and said, yes, there's a wide way into the city, an easy way, a wide road, wide gate, or this narrow way, and you're like, well, I'm going to choose the, the wide one. And then they said, but the wide one is going to kill you. Well, suddenly your choice is going to be very different. One ends in destruction. The other ends in life. There's a few things we learn from this. And and I'm taking these out of D.A. Carson's book, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I think he did such a great job on this. He says that God's way, one thing we learn from the idea of a narrow way, God's way is by necessity and by definition, it is confining and limiting. God's way is not just doing what we want, getting what we want, getting what makes us happy. That is not the idea of a narrow way here. That is, in fact, the idea of the broad way. There's a huge trend in Christians. There always has been. But there's a a movement in churches today. God just wants to make you happy. He just wants to give you riches and wealth and health and just give you what you want. Whatever your heart desires, God's the one that put it there. Just follow it all. That is absolute garbage. That is not what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, said. He said, here's the wide way, here's the broad way, your heart's desire, and it leads to death. And then he says, here's my way. And it is narrow. It is confining and limiting. Another thing we learn is that God's way cannot be found in majority opinion. God's way is not popular. As we live for the kingdom of heaven in this world, as we live as Christians in a non-Christian or secular culture, our way, which 
I pray is God's way, is going to be out of sync with the ways of this world. The people on the wide path are extremely happy. It's easy for them. And we look really foolish struggling on a narrow way. God's way is not to be found in popular opinion. The other thing we see is that walking the narrow way is incompatible with pleasing this world or with the people in it. If our Christianity is such that our main goal is keeping everybody around us happy, we need to ask ourselves, are we truly following Jesus? Now, don't get me wrong. Don't go to the opposite extreme. Well, then the Christian thing to do is just to make everybody mad. No, that's not biblical either. And some Christians fall on that side of the equation. But our primary purpose cannot be to please the world. And our primary purpose as individual Christians cannot be to please the other individuals in our life. It must be to walk following Jesus on the narrow way. The fourth thing we learn from this that Carson helpfully points out is that this is an eternal choice. These paths are not just better and worse. They are life and death. And they are for eternity. Jesus sets before us the choice of heaven or hell, life or death. And friends, count the ways that he gives us. There are two. Just two. There's the way of Jesus, and then there's everything else. The rest of the passage here supports this concept of just two choices. Here he talks about two paths. In 15 through 20, he's going to talk about two trees. 21 through 23, there are two types of disciples. In 24 to 27, there are two builders. There are two and only two. Life and death. Heaven and hell. What I just said is absolutely not accepted in our world today. And frankly, will never be until Jesus comes. We want to hear that all ways are equal and there are all these paths to God and you just follow your path. And if this is your path, that's great. And if this is your path, that's great. Jesus says there are two paths, life and death. His path and any other path out there. Some of you right now might be just seething at me. How dare you? Who do you think you are? I think I'm nobody. These are the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And don't miss the truth that one of these paths is only possible because the one who said it is going to go to the cross to accomplish it. That gives him the right to say it. There are only two ways. We must choose. In many ways, the rest of the passage, these other two choices, help us to understand which path we're on. And so let's look at these. In verses 15 through 20, he talks about choosing our source. He uses an image of two trees. Two trees from which the people might get uh, food or fruit. I think one of them is actually a vine. But you get the idea. Two plants. And there were actually other plants in their culture, in their area, that looked like these two fruits he's talking about, figs and grapes. From a distance, you might go, oh, that looks good. And then you get up close and go, "Uh uh-uh, that's the wrong plant. That's not actually a fig. 
That's something that's going to be bad for me. That's not actually a great. Kind of sort of look like it from a distance, but it's not. Look at what he says in verses 15 through 20. And I know this is small, but I wanted to get it all up there for us. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus is comparing these two sources of food, these two fruit sources to two types of teachers, a false teacher and a true teacher. And Jesus really only deals much with the false teacher here, the signs that someone is a false teacher. And he tells us that we need to examine their fruit. Now, what is he talking about when he says, look at their fruit? We would tend to take this, and I think we're correct in this, we would tend to take it as look at their life. And that, that's good, but let's look at the context first. The context is a teacher. What is the primary fruit of a teacher? Well, it's their teaching. So I think we need to start there. Before we look at somebody's life, let's look at their teaching because he has just said, enter through the narrow gate. Don't go through the wide gate that leads to destruction. So what if you have a guy that's totally classy, wonderful, kind, loving, but he doesn't preach or teach that Jesus Christ is the only way? Is that a good teacher or a bad teacher? Bad teacher. Period. Full stop. No matter what else he says, no matter what the rest of his life looks like. If someone, and I think that's primarily what Jesus is dealing with here. If someone is teaching that Jesus is not the only way, they are a false teacher. So that's the first thing we need to look at when we look at their fruit. Look at the fruit of their teaching. But I do think there is a broader application that we're not wrong in making, which is look at their lives. Do they live out what they teach? Uh, Is their, their life bearing fruit according to their teaching? And Jesus here is challenging us to consider our source of truth. How are we feeding ourselves? What are we listening to? Which means you guys need to be judging me. It does. You need to be judging my teaching. You need to be looking at my life. Now, I hope with some grace and mercy, because I'm not perfect. But you also need to be considering any source of truth in your life. What books are you reading? Who are you listening to? Are you listening to other sermons on the internet? Are you reading uh, books by other Christian authors? And are those things in line with the truth of Jesus Christ? And does their life back it up? I got to tell you, popular Christian literature, popular Christian bookstores are filled with so many books by so many teachers that are not teaching that Jesus Christ is the only way. And if you're listening to someone and they come out and they're saying that, well, I really don't think it's important. There are many ways. Stop listening to that teacher. No matter how great they make you feel, stop listening to them. They are a false teacher. False teachers tend to make us feel good. False teachers tend to make themselves look good. 
But according to what Jesus is saying here in the context of these two choices, two paths, he is saying the false teachers are leading us to hell. We might be incredibly happy every step of the way. But it is a choice that leads to death. Carefully choose your source of teaching. Let's look at another choice that defines this narrow way. And I've used the word here for claim. Choose your claim. You know, when you cross the border into Canada or, or you're flying in from some, remember when we used to be able to do these things? You're coming in from some other place uh, and you're crossing a border and the customs agent says, do you have anything to declare? Well, when I was three, I stole my brother's marker. And I, you know, what are you supposed to say to those things? What do they mean? So much pressure. We always tell the kids when we're crossing the Canadian border, just be quiet. Don't say anything. Just be quiet. If they ask you a question, just answer it shortly and quickly so we can move on. Especially when you come back to the States, because those guys are tough. But think about it. Here in this passage, is, is not just crossing a border. It's when we stand before the Lord on Judgment Day. What are we going to claim about ourselves? What are we holding on to and saying, this is my salvation. This is my cry before my Lord God. Let's look here at what Jesus says in verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you, you evildoers. Wow. Let's notice a few things. Both claim Jesus. This is not an atheist and a Christian being compared here. These are two people that would say, I'm a Christian. That's hard. This to me is a terrifying passage. This has always been hard for me in ministry and in life. This means to me that there are people who think they are Christians that are not. And that's hard. And and there's a part of me as a pastor, I want to soften that and just say, oh, if you're worried about it, that means the Spirit's at work in you and you're okay and run to the gospel. And that's true, but we need to let Jesus' words sink in I'm going to stand before Jesus and say, I believe in Jesus. But Jesus is going to look at some of us and say, I don't even know who you are. I never knew you. One claims that he or she has done great things for Christ. Look at verse 22 there. Did we not prophesy? And and look at the start of their claim. Did we, right? Let's go back to grade school here, grammar. What's the, the subject of the sentence? We. Us. This person is looking at themselves. If I could just give you an eternal hint here, when you're standing before the Lord Jesus, the subject of your sentence on what you're claiming when you're entering the kingdom of heaven should be Jesus. Full stop. But they're saying, didn't we... Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, didn't we drive out demons? And in your name, didn't we perform many miracles? So that's the first problem there. They are claiming a self-righteousness, which Jesus has already dealt with at length. 
But there's a second problem here. Their claim is about amazing things, incredible experiences, and great accomplishments. To bring this into modern terms, we might say these are people that are incredibly active in the church. That might be one group. People that got involved, served as ushers or greeters or Sunday school teachers or maybe even in leadership positions, but never trusted Jesus as their Savior. And they think they're a Christian because they are involved in Christian things. I think another challenge would be, or another modern application would be, those who have had great worship or religious experiences in their life. But Jesus, I went to worship service after worship service, and I felt the Spirit move, and I saw the crowds, and it was amazing, and my hands were up high, and I just gave myself wholeheartedly to you. And he's saying, you never knew me, and I didn't know you. Another group of modern Christians might be those who do great social works. They get heavily involved, living a righteous life, social cause after social cause after social cause, and they stand before the Lord. Did I not do all these things for you? He says, but you didn't know me. Jesus says that the only one who enters the kingdom of heaven The only one who is truly on the narrow way is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is inescapable here that the chief characteristic that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gives for a true follower of Jesus Christ is obedience. Obedience. We teach and preach a gospel of grace as we must. We teach and preach that we are not saved through anything that we do. It is only through Jesus Christ. That is the truth of the gospel. No one comes to Jesus on their own merit. But sometimes I think we are too soft on the other equation, which is if someone does not have fruit in their life of being a follower of Jesus, they need to ask some serious questions. How can I claim to be a follower of Christ if there is no evidence in my life? Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has emphasized that true citizens of the kingdom will show true obedience in their life. Obedience does not save us. Only Christ saves us. But Christ saves us to change us and cause us to live different. Are we going to claim amazing experiences for Jesus? Are we going to claim amazing accomplishments for Jesus? Are we going to claim amazing dedication to the church and Christian religious activities? Or are we going to claim that we trusted Jesus and followed him each and every day of our lives? The next choice that Jesus challenges us with or challenges us to consider whether or not we're on the narrow or the wide way is to choose our foundation. Jesus challenges us to consider the totality of how we are building our lives. Like every choice, every step, every day is another brick that we are building. 
But he's not just challenging us how we build. He gets to the heart issue on where or what is our foundation. Look at verses 24 to 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Consider for a moment two houses have been built. Both might look beautiful. Inside and out might be incredibly impressive. Equal in quality. Equal in design. When is the difference seen? It's when the storms come. It's when difficulty hits. The houses were already different, but they're seen to be different when the storm comes. And what is it that makes the difference? It's not the strength of their building materials. It's not their building techniques. It's not whether one has a better strategy than the other. It's not whether one Christian lives their life better than another. In this scenario, it is the choice of the foundation. One built on sand and one built on rock. So who? Who is Jesus talking about here? Who is the foolish man and who is the wise man. Notice verse 26 there. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is the foolish man. That's a great way to finish a sermon, by the way. I couldn't do that because I'm not Jesus, but he is, so he can do this. Jesus is saying to us, as we have just walked through the Sermon on the Mount, and anytime we come to the Word of God, if we listen to Him and go, oh yeah, amen, that's great, that's wonderful, and then we walk out these doors forgetting what is said and not putting it into practice in our lives, Jesus Christ Himself is saying, we are foolish. And He defines the wise man in verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. There is quite literally a foundational difference between these two choices. One is built on Jesus, and the other is built on anything else. I imagine the person that built on sand could build much quicker, probably much cheaper. Building on a stone foundation is hard work, it's not easy. You can't just reshape it easily to what you want. You have to deal with what is there. And so the last thing that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is to challenge us to consider carefully what we are going to do with his teachings. Will we make them the foundation of our lives or will we walk away unchanged? And then what happens when the storms come? Jesus has spent three chapters here in the book of Matthew teaching us about kingdom living. What does it mean to live in his kingdom? What does it look like? How should we be different than the world? 
And he's explaining that his truth and walking his way and following him must change us. We must look different than this world for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. But before Matthew walks away from the Sermon on the Mount, he adds two more verses in verses 28 and 29. Verses that are easy to skip over but are so powerful. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. You see, traditional rabbi teaching at that time would be a rabbi would get up and they would read a passage of the Old Testament and they would say, Rabbi so-and-so teaches this. And Rabbi so-and-so teaches this. And Rabbi so-and-so teaches this. But I follow Rabbi so-and-so, so I'm teaching you this. They teach in the authority of their rabbi. They always had a derivative authority. Their authority came from someone else, not from their own. So you would listen to someone that had the best footnotes, right? The best bibliography that was the most well-researched because they had authority behind what they were saying. They had the weight of all these rabbis throughout history. And you go, wow, that's, that's powerful. These people listen to Jesus and they say, wait a minute. He is teaching as one who has his own authority. This is more than just a group of people going, wow, he's a really good teacher. I like listening to him. They are saying he is teaching with an authority we have never heard before. That's pretty smart of them. Sometimes I wonder when we come to scripture, if we have the same response. This is the word of God. It's not just a helpful how-to book to keep on the shelf with every other helpful how-to book. This is the word of God with the authority of God himself. This is authority above and beyond every other authority in the world. The Sermon on the Mount is a scalpel in the hands of a masterful teacher who knows his subject matter matter better than anybody else because he was there when the law was written in the first place. And he knows the soul and the state of every single person standing there listening to him and every single person that will ever hear these words. And he's using this sermon to cut to the heart of us, to challenge our self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, and to challenge the very foundation upon which we have built our lives, and to challenge the route and the path of our lives to say, which way are we going? As we end here, I want to ask one question and answer it, because I think it's important. Is Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount that we just need to work our way to heaven? Is he just saying if you live the right way, then you are his follower and you are saved? And it's important to answer that question, no. Remember that the point of the sermon is right here in chapter 4, verse 17. Who needs to repent? He's calling us to repent. We don't switch one way of living on our own for another way of living on our own. That's not repentance. We switch every way of living on our own for Jesus and following him. That's repentance. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount began in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, the people that say, God shouldn't accept me. I have nothing to offer him. I don't bring anything to the table. That's where he starts the whole sermon. The person who truly understands what Jesus is talking about here is the person that desperately understands, if I'm not saved by Jesus Christ, I don't have a chance. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember how Jesus was introduced in verse or chapter 1, verse 21. He's called Jesus, the one who saves his people from, his, from their sins. He's called Emmanuel, God who has come to be with us. At the Last Supper, Jesus says in verse 28 of Matthew 26, this is, the, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. All of this is pointing up to the fact that if he doesn't save us, we are not saved. And then, of course, Matthew spends the rest of his gospel on the cross and the resurrection because that's where salvation is from. We see this elsewhere in Scripture as well. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We cannot save ourselves But we so often stop quoting those verses there. But verse 10 is crucial. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Salvation is all through Jesus. We are righteous because of his righteousness and because he paid the price for our sins. But true salvation will bring true and real heart change and life change. We need to start by giving up our own self-righteousness, admitting that we can't do this. We need Jesus. And then he says, come, walk with me. Follow my path. It's going to be hard at times. But the best thing about the narrow way is that Jesus is there with us every step of the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the Sermon on the Mount, as hard as it is, as convicting as it is to preach these words, to read these words. I thank you. There is a blessing and a grace in having you hold up a mirror to our souls that we look deeply and intently, even to our own flaws. But Father, I thank you that knowing these things and seeing these things, we are able to repent and to turn to you and to know that you love us anyway, and that we are saved not because of any efforts on our own, but because of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here and they're looking at their life and they are on that wide way, they're doing their own thing and just asking you to bless it, God, may they stop. May they fall on their knees and turn to you and say, Jesus, I don't want my way. God, we don't need your blessing on our way. We need your way which is the way of life, the ultimate blessing. And then may they give their lives to Jesus, who is the gate, who is the path, and who is the ultimate destination of that way, and who promises to be with us every step along the path. And Father, we need that right now in our lives, in our church, and in our world. We need Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.